G'day Footyology listeners, Roko here. Enjoy our podcast? Well, you can become an official Footyology podcast supporter simply by using the supporter feature through ACAST. There's no subscription or regular commitment, just the sheer satisfaction that comes with knowing you've kept the debt collectors from our door. No, just kidding. It does help though. If you want to get started, you just need to follow the support this show link in the show description. Thanks again. And now let's get on with it. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. G'day everyone, welcome to the Footyology Podcast. This is our semi-final preview edition. We're going to have a full in-depth look at both the semi-finals this week. Uh, Richmond taking on St Kilda and Geelong taking on Collingwood. One of each will survive, one will go into mothballs. High stakes indeed, and we've got full previews of both those games. Plenty more besides, though, plenty of news. The trade market really ramping up over the last couple of days. And we've got a couple of rants to finish off. As I say, a very good morning to my footyology co-host, Mark Fine. How are you going, Finey? Yeah, I'm well. Good to have the rant back as well. That'll be something to... Look forward to at the end of the podcast. When I say look forward to, I look forward to yours. Well, because uh, you yes. always you always rant desperately, and I'm thinking after, well, what has been a prolonged period without ranting, it could be something special. Uh, well, let's just say at this stage, it's uh, about a certain club domiciled in the northwestern suburbs of Melbourne. Uh, that's probably all the clues you need. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'm a little bit angry about what's going on there, but uh, I'll tell you what I'm not angry about. I am always enthusiastic when we talk about a certain fast food product, Fanny. And in fast food, doesn't necessarily have to mean non-nutritious because these things are nutritious and tasty and everything you're looking for when it comes to that great staple of life. Food. What am I talking about? Andrew's hamburgers. A simple answer. A beautiful answer. A tasty answer. One forty-four Bridport Street, Albert Park. You know, I've I've got to lend every now and then when I think of Andrew's hamburgers, I think of that famous ad for a well-known local beer. A matter of fact, I could have one now. I haven't had my first meal of the day yet. I'm, we don't need to say what time we record this, but God, I could go an Andrew's hamburger now. Well, I'd even throw an egg in as an ode to breakfast. We record this too bloody early for my liking all the time, but I could go one any time of day or night. And indeed, that could have been very applicable last night when I was still up at 4am putting the finishing touches on something to do with this podcast. Uh, I'll tell you what else I'm looking forward to, Finey. When we finally get out of our uh, Melbourne suburban prisons, uh, I am looking forward to having a drive around town and having a look at all the beautiful houses and beautifully renovated houses that one day, when we're able to pull a decent wage, we may also aspire to. And if I want to fix up this dump that I'm living in, where should I turn? Well, actually, yours is the perfect example of probably a a block of land that is under, 
I don't know what the financial term is. Not undercapitalized, but yeah, you could do you could do with a rebuild. Nick Spartels, West Point Properties, all the latest mod cons, but with an a respectful eye to the character of the building, the house that he's working with. It's a very clever mix of not disturbing the heritage of some of Melbourne's beautiful homes, but filling them with the most modern of appointments. And, and affordable too. They're not judgmental at all, the Spartels boys. Uh, if you're living in a uh, corrugated iron shack, they will look at coming around and uh, heating up the floor tiles underneath that um, tin iron just to uh, give your feet at least a little bit of warmth while the rain's pissing in from above. You'd have the best, I'll tell you what, you'd have the best shack on Skid Row. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, a street I already feel I'm living on. Uh, <laughs> all right, uh, plenty to get through, starting with some news. Let's do it. On Footyology, News Feed. All right, plenty happening on the trade front as per usual. We actually don't even have an official trade period yet, but, of course, that never stops the speculation. And there's been more than speculation in a few important cases, finally. I guess not much doubt the biggest news stories of the week concerning the Essendon Football Club and uh, the imminent departures of two guys, Adam Saad, who has nominated Carlton as his preferred destination. That, of course, will have to be worked out in a trade. And Joe Danaher, who is a restricted free agent and after last year requesting a trade to Sydney, is this year requesting a trade to Brisbane. One of those was a bit of a bombshell. The other one, not necessarily that surprising. But boy, it's been a long time in the making. What did you make of all that? Well, certainly we, with Essendon, expect uh, another player to put his hand up shortly, Orazio Fantasia. It's got to be understood, though, that Fantasia and Danaher were expected to do this at season's end. As you said, Adam Saad is the one that at 26 years of age, with a comparable offer on the table from Essendon, makes a bit of a statement by saying he wants to go to Carlton. Now, that's two players that have nominated Carlton as their destination of choice, Zach Williams as well, which is a good sign for Carlton. You want to be a destination club, and it certainly franks their season and also what David Teague has brought to the club in terms of the ambience, the culture at the club. So well done to Carlton, albeit two similar players. And I'm not 100% sure whether the suggestion that Zach Williams can just go into the midfield is necessarily the correct one. But time will play and good to have cards to play with and, you know, deck chairs to shuffle. So Carlton look well placed. Yeah, well, the machinations uh, may have a bit to play out here too. I see suggestions as we record this that uh, Essendon isn't ruling out matching the offer for Joe Danaher, which, frankly, I find hard to believe. I mean, it's the second time he's wanted out. Surely they wouldn't make him stay, would they? Surely they would take this as a cue to do a proper rebuild that perhaps should have been on the cards already. They couldn't do that, could they, Finding It's the three Ps on that one, mate. Petulance, posturing and piss and wind. They're not going to do it. And it's basically just sour grapes. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, look, from a this is rocked, isn't it? There's no doubt about that. It's obvious in the feedback. What does it mean for the Bombers? Well, we could cover off on this finey, but we haven't got a spare couple of hours. Uh, I might as well say again here, I uh, have prepared a rant on the Essendon Football Club. So, uh, Bomber fans, if you're looking to find out what the hell is going on and why, hang around. We'll get to that. But uh, in the meantime, finding some other trade news. Yeah, Jackson, GWS is another club where the zeitgeist isn't good. Aiden Core, of course, has announced he's out of the club. Zach Williams is out of the club. And Jackson Hately, a lesser-known player, but still a early draft pick, is a South Australian boy and has indicated that he wants to go back home and play for Adelaide. So cards are falling or dominoes are falling there as well. You mentioned nope. uh, Zeitgeist. Yeah. Just quickly, what's wrong with him? Uh, he'll go to North Melbourne because all players <laughs> whose name <laughs> begins with the letter Z end up at North Melbourne except for Zerk Thatcher. Correct. Good answer. Yeah, so Zeitgeist will be lining up with Zerhar and Zebul and Zeri, which I know with is with an X in so the we'll form. Get him, we'll get him to change it to a Z just to fit in. Yeah, actually, I like him with an X because he becomes the only player with an X in the AFL Encyclopedia of Footballers, which means in some editions he gets his photo in the edition because they do the photo of the best player with that letter. Nice work. Okay, um, Jaden uh, Braden Bruce, I should say, the ridiculous signing by Melbourne from North Melbourne a couple of years ago, given that Max Gorn has a stranglehold on the ruck and rucks all day. It was a stupid pick and, and one of many choices by Melbourne that is not list conscious, I believe, will be moving farther afield and quite a few teams have shown some interest in him. Obviously, GWS looking for Rackman, Sydney looking for ruck support, even Hawthorne who have McAvoy and Segler maybe looking for somebody a bit younger. Speaking of Melbourne, under pressure from perceived pressure from other clubs, they've made a big commitment to Viney. Uh, Jack Viney goes and gets a five-year deal, which is probably on the longer end. What do you make of that? You know, given that we know that their midfield is two inside with Oliver Brayshaw and Viney, Viney for five years, does that mean Brayshaw has to move on soon enough? Yeah, it's um, it's really locking someone in, isn't it? I mean, we've got more used to long-term deals in the last few years, but they tend to be of players uh, a bit younger than Jack Viney, don't they? And Jack Viney is now uh, 26. So, um, yeah, it certainly sees out his career, that's for sure. Uh, Gold Coast have already picked up Rory Atkins. He's going to go to the Gold Coast. Does well. He was on the outer at a team, you know, when he was told there's no room for you in the side. Adelaide hadn't won a game in a dozen weeks. He gets a, a four-year, $400,000 a year deal at Gold Coast. So good work by him and his manager. But Well, remember remember the sort of footy he played in 2017 when they had such a good season. But he, yeah, yeah. he, he was a really good player for them that year. He was. Um, yeah, we'll see what colour he dyes his hair. His form seemed to be dependent on strange hair colour choices that changed every week. 
they've also indicated, and I reckon they'll be landing this fish for certain, an interest in Oleg Markov. So I reckon he ends up at the Gold Coast. He's only played 23 games in five or six years, or four or five years. So um, Markov, the son of the former famous Bulgarian pole vaulter, will be heading up to the Gold Coast, I think, for next season. Um, yeah, there's a few other rumours and bits and pieces around. Majacek yet to re-sign at Collingwood, and there's a fairly, they say, a big gap between what he wants per season and what they're offering per season. He's 27 years old, so watch this space. Higgins definitely leaving North Geelong, the expected landing place for him. And, of course, plenty of speculation with some others as well. Well, just quickly on North, what's happened with Ben Brown? Because I reckon, you know, without wanting to linger on Essendon with every discussion, I think as soon as the Danaher thing was announced, a lot of Essendon supporters would have thought, what about Ben Brown? Well, he's up for grabs. Obviously, Essendon, North Melbourne are expecting a first-round pick. Essendon, you see, Essendon needs to be uh, an active player in trade week and, and not a stubborn uh, bargaining bargaining partner because they've got that reputation with Adrian Tadoro and that's why things stalled with Danaher last year. Now, they'll get a compensation pick for Danaher there's a bit of a discussion as to whether or not a player that has barely played in two years automatically gets a first-round pick. I say yes, because Dan Hur's a wonderful player. But yeah, others, well, others say no, and they what they do say is that they would have done far better because, remember, Brisbane, you know, they're every chance of winning the flag. So we're talking about pick 20 anyhow. Uh, Dora would have been much better to read the tea leaves and got what he could have got from Sydney last year. Oh, there's no doubt about that. I, I think, um, you know, the Brown-Essendon will be an interesting discussion too because if they do concede, yes, we've got to rebuild. Eh, how old's Brown? 27, I think. Um, you know, is that the sort of age bracket you still want to be picking players up in? Uh, yep. Or do you go for That's a younger it. key position player you can develop? They've got a, a young guy there, Harry Jones, who there's big raps on, but we yep. haven't really seen him yet. Um, so some interesting discussions there for the Bombers hierarchy, if there's one left um, by the time <laughs> the, uh, you know, what hits the fan. Um, all right, we've got some other news, I guess, uh, more pressing matters. Uh, ben Long suspended by the match review officer, Saints uh, tried that on at the uh, tribunal and appeal and uh, hasn't worked. No, they tried everything that they could. They went to the tribunal, then they appealed it. They took a biomechanist to the appeals tribunal and then found out they couldn't, he wasn't allowed to give evidence for some reason. I'm not sure, but I don't think, I think they could have taken... um, Harry Houdini, the good Lord, and Andrew Demetriou. And, and they, you know what? They could have taken Al Capone and Tony Soprano. They weren't changing anybody's mind. And Ben Long misses a game, and that seems about right. It was a pretty forceful act. So, and if you're taking Al Capone, you wouldn't need a biomechanics expert. You'd need a ballistics expert, wouldn't you? Yeah, well, I'm saying as a standover man. In oh. other words, they, they could have taken a magician, 
uh, a miracle man who makes miracles if God exists. Um, I'll tell you what, if God does exist, he certainly was very prolific as a miracle maker a couple of thousand years ago. He's been very quiet since, hasn't he? Yeah, well, I'd say this. If God exists, I reckon 2020 is the definitive proof he hates us. Or should. Yeah, he's got, yeah, he's got something in that. If there is a, a greater power, then uh, they've got something in them. I wonder, I wonder what other planets they run. Is it, are we part of a franchise? Anyhow. Well, there was a famous South Park episode where it was revealed that Earth was, in fact, a reality TV show. Yeah, well, there you go. Was that the music one? <laughs> no, it was the one where the four boys went on a bender with two alien producers who took them out to a titty bar, got them pissed, and then made them watch while they oh, yeah, that's took right. that's copious right. amounts of drugs and made out with an alien hooker. Yeah, I, I'm thinking of Rick and Morty, where yes, yes. Earth, Earth is just in a big episode of, like, The Voice or something like that. I, I, knew, I knew Rick and Morty would be up your alley. Oh, it's hard to work out. I'm, I'm not smart enough to watch it. Anyhow, uh, yeah, so Ben Long misses out, and that's a big loss to St Kilda. He's a very important player. The other uh, news of the week and uh, that time-honoured debating point, which one AFL club president in particular seems to be manic about, uh, jumper clashes. And we've been talking about that with regards to the Geelong-Collingwood game on uh, Saturday night. More a short clash. Um, So Geelong, as the higher-ranked team, should have first choice, but... According to Eddie Maguire, he had a handshake agreement with Frank Costa 20 years ago that the current chief executive knows nothing about um, that says that when these two teams play, Geelong will always wear white shorts. Basically, Collingwood has always been difficult when it comes to clash jumpers because, of course, Collingwood's jumpers are either black and white stripes or white and black stripes. And they claim that they had a third clash jumper this year I mean, they're utterly delusional, Collingwood. They make no effort. And basically, when it comes to Geelong, who there is a bit of a monochromatic clash with, and some other clubs, St Kilda's been involved in issues with them before, Eddie McGuire has a very simple fix. We wear what we want, and then you can choose something that doesn't clash with that. doesn't matter which team is the higher-ranked or the home team. That's how we sort this problem out. And it's that sort of arrogance that will always make sure that for dyed-in-the-wool football supporters, your favourite team is the one you're barrack for and somewhere down the very, very bottom of teams that you like, in other words, teams that you hate the most, Collingwood is prominent. And that, I must say that, it. It's that sort of, it's that sort of um, railroading, hubris, self-important chest pumping, we're the biggest and the best and the first and the one that needs to be accommodated, behaviour that will always make sure that Collingwood is held in some sort of, you know, is despised by most other supporters. I've never quite worked out why when it comes to this and Eddie says we're doing this, the AFL don't actually say, no, you're not, you're doing what we want. I mean... Yeah, you know what? If I was the chief executive, if I was in Gillan McLaughlin's position, which is unlikely that I will ever run the AFL, but 
I would just love to do this. Look, Collingwood, we are going to decide what your away jumper is because you have been problematic ever since Colour TV came in and clashes became an issue because before Colour TV, didn't every team clash? Um, And we have decided that your official away jumper is tangerine with a, yeah, tangerine with a big smiley face, a brown smiley face on either, you know, on front and back. Sort that out. Yeah. They should should have colours enforced on them if they don't behave. I I do remember a uh, night game in the old, you know, Amco night series where they had to play Swan Districts. Yeah. And it was they who had to wear the different jumpers. Um, but And that was back in the, geez, I think that was back in the late 70s even. Um, what, would you, what would you make their clash jumper be? I actually would, I've decided what it should be. I'd, I'd make it a Carlton jumper. <laughs> I'd make it with, I'd make it light aqua with a brown um, oblong shaped object on the front. <laughs> I, I can remember, actually, I remember a debate. There was one year Eddie got into a tiz about it when they were playing North Melbourne. And I think, um, uh, that's right. Yeah, I do remember this. So they were playing North Melbourne. North Melbourne, for some reason, was wearing orange. I kid you not. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I remember their orange jumper. Yeah, yeah. But Eddie, with an orange kangaroo on it or something. Well, Eddie came up with a smart line. about it. He said, uh, well, you know, North Melbourne, they're making themselves look like the the Wiggles, but uh, we're Collingwood, uh, we're the Rolling Stones. And I, I remember immediately thinking, well, that's probably pretty appropriate because the Rolling Stones haven't made a decent album for about 30 years either. <laughs> well, unfortunately, they get their way again. And last, but uh, by no means least, in uh, terms of importance, finding on the news agenda this week, the AFLW draft was a real success in Victorian terms for the Northern Knights. And, of course, we've got 57 footballers who have been placed on AFL lists. So, actually, the pre-season starts in November and get ready to see some new faces. Number one pick, Richmond, selected Ellie McKenzie from the Northern Knights. Western Bulldogs, Jess Fitzgerald from the Northern Knights. Picks three and four were West Coast and Adelaide, and their selections, uh, the draft is more state-based. Of course, it's not quite national as we have in the men's draft. So West Coast selected Claremont's Isabella Lewis. Adelaide went for Taya Charlton from South Adelaide. And rounding out the top five for Melbourne was another Northern Knights footballer, Alyssa Bannon. And uh, continuing a great football tradition, finally, not Father sons now, but father daughters. We've got uh, we've got some of them this year, haven't we? We certainly do. Sort of a bit of a headline act. St Kilda have taken Alicia Burke, a <laughs> unsurprisingly tough inside midfielder, uh, daughter of Nathan Burke, and she'll wear the number three. Interestingly, of course, Nathan Burke is the coach of Western Bulldogs AFLW side, and with Alicia still living at home, a bit of by-play there already. And there are a couple of others. 
Well, yes, uh, the Brown family. Boy, the bloodlines in the Brown family are pretty decent. Uh, of course, Gavin Brown, Collingwood great. His two sons, Callum and Tyler, playing plenty of senior footy with the Pies. And now his daughter, Tani Brown, being picked up by Collingwood as well as uh, a father-daughter selection. And uh, at North Melbourne, another father-daughter pick, Amy Smith, the daughter of uh, former Kangaroo and Melbourne high leaper, Sean Smith. Um, she will suit up for the Ruse next season as well. So great to see um, those bloodlines beginning to play as big a part in AFLW, Finey, as in the men's competition. Yeah, it's exciting, especially for a club like St Kilda that hasn't really done very well in father-son. Hopefully father-daughter works well. Just to confuse matters, because you've got a Smith and a Brown there, we know that North Melbourne have or about to move on, Ben Brown. But they've drafted a tall, high-marking Tasmanian, of course, Ben Brown from Tasmania, called Brooke Brown from the Launceston Football Club. And she's um, supposed to have many of the characteristics of the soon-to-be-removed Ben Brown. A curly curly mop of hair and an Alice band. A long run-up, maybe. (laughs) Um, But a really interesting selection just to finish it off was, and a surprise selection, Tessa Levy picked up by the Tigers. Tessa Levy is a representative, a member of the Australian women's basketball team who hasn't really played footy. Um, they were sort of scrambling to find out whether she played some junior football, but in terms of senior football and in recent years, no football on her resume, but plenty of height and plenty of sporting pedigree. So, the Tigers a bit outside the box there with Tessa Levy. Interesting and uh, great seeing a whole new batch of talent coming into uh, what is already a thriving competition. Look forward to the next AFLW season. All right, I reckon that's enough news. This weekend's all about two big knockout finals. Let's preview them. On Footyology Previews with Punch. The first of two big knockout finals, but in actual fact, officially called the second semi-final. Friday night, 7.50pm at Gold Coast Metricon Stadium. It is Richmond and St Kilda. Their first meeting in a finals match, believe it or not, since 1973. Uh, fair to say the lineups have changed considerably since then. These two teams clashed it's uh, Marvel Stadium back in round four, and it produced a very, very impressive performance by the Saints. And in the end, a 26-point win to them. 15 goals, three. How's that for accuracy? 93, defeating the Tigers, 10-7, 67. Uh, on that occasion, three goals to Butler, three to Membry, two to Loney, Kent and Marshall. Uh, for the Tigers, Lynch 2 and Bolton 2. In selection terms, well, a massive one for the Tigers, finally, with Tom Lynch coming back from that hamstring injury. Um, Jack Higgins will be unavailable this week, could be fit for the preliminary, though, if they make it. Boy, the changes for St Kilda, though, of a bit more consequence, all on the negative side of the ledger, unfortunately. Ben Wong 
out suspended. We talked about that earlier. Uh, Jake Carlisle has departed St Kilda's hub to be present with his partner for the birth of his third child. And Paddy Ryder, of course, sadly, uh, also seriously injuring a hamstring in the final minute of that elimination final win over the Bulldogs. A big clash. Uh, oh, another one, actually, for the Saints. Josh Battle, who missed last week, uh, still in a race against time to be fit for this final as well. Still pretty appetising contest, though, Finey. What is going to happen? Well, I've got... Let me just run through some sort of extended details from that previous game in terms of what's going to happen. Gee, it's a tough ass to St Kilda, but last time they met, St Kilda had Carlisle, Marsh and Gresham in the team. They won't be playing this time. And interestingly, that means Paddy Ryder did not play in that win over Richmond. So still a huge loss, of course, but he did not play in that game. Richmond will be without Nathan Broad. Josh Caddy probably won't be playing. Higgins, Stack and Ross all played in that game. So it is a a different looking Tigers. As you said, first time these teams have met since 1973. Did you know, Rowan, it's the first time they've been in the same final series since 1973. So the club's fortunes and both teams have had periods in the finals and up near the top of the ladder, but they have not coincided. Last time they met, certainly couldn't blame the umpires for the game going either way. 15 free kicks apiece. And interestingly in that game, probably Dustin Martin's worst game of the season. He only had seven kicks, 11 handballs, no goals won, not named in the Tigers' best. Jack Steele played on Dustin Martin when he was in the centre. And when he went forward, Callum Wilkie was given the responsibility and you can expect that to happen again. So St Kilda certainly have a question as to how they are going to replace those three missing players. And with Josh Battle, no certainty. I'll tell you this, Rowan, I am hell-bent on one thing and I really uh, hope St Kilda do go this way. I think it is an absolute imperative that Ryan Abbott comes in for the injured Paddy Ryder. Now, Ryan Abbott has only played one game for St Kilda. He's only played six games in total. One of them was a final for Geelong. He is a ruckman and he was brought into the club as a late um, pickup from Geelong, given a contract just for this circumstance as a backup ruckman to Ryder and Marshall. And the reason I say he has to play is to preserve Rowan Marshall up forward, which does give the Tigers a bit of a headache there. They have been found out by tall forwards in the past, famously Mason Cox in the preliminary final of 2018. With Marshall up forward, that means that Grimes has to be responsible for Marshall and can't be that great third-up intercept player that would probably make the evening an impossibility for Max King, who most likely will be taken by Noah Bolter. So I think for structure, St Kilda have to play Abbott. They will bring in Shane Savage, I believe, for Ben Long. And Dylan Roberton, amazingly, who played in the first game of the season after missing for almost two years, is a likely recall at centre-half back to take on Jack Rewalt. Oh, my, uh, 
Yep. My, my abiding memory of that round four game is that St Kilda basically ran Richmond off their feet. So, uh, I mean, getting battled back would certainly help them up forward, wouldn't it? But I, I would have thought a, a major focus for them, if they're going to beat the Tigers, would have to be some decent outside run. Yeah, look, that was at Marvel Stadium. The fact is that it's just a hard ground, Metricon, to have that sort of run. It's going to be, it, it tends to be greasy there at night. And I think St Kilda really need to go with the structure that has proved so successful for them by having Marshall up forward with King, even though the ball's greasy, it's still markable. I, 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 I don't, I think they've got still the requisite pace, you know, Butler, Hill, uh, Kent is a fast footballer. To go without Marshall, uh, to go without Abbott puts Marshall in the ruck for the entire game. And interestingly, in that game that they played against Richmond in round four, do you know who provided the backup ruck support for Rowan Marshall? It was Josh Battle and Jake Carlisle. Yeah, ah, battle does, okay. If Battle doesn't play and Carlisle's not playing, who are they going to throw in the ruck? And the, that, and the fact is that they need Marshall up forward for part of the game. Oh, I think Abbott has to play. But regardless of which way they structure up, it's an enormously difficult task for St Kilda to win this game. Why? Well, who, who takes Fonny? Who takes uh, Rewalt and Lynch? Well, Lynch will definitely get Dougal Howard. And they'll, I think, bring Robertson in to play on Jack Rewalt. It seems don't, the ob- mm, obvious. Like that. Well, they don't really have anybody else to play on him. Mm. Callum Wilkie will be taking Dustin Martin. Not tall enough anyhow. And Caulfield's not tall enough. No, they have to bring somebody in and that's who they're going to bring in. Yeah, okay. Certainly some challenges there for the Saints uh, coaching panel in terms of matchups. And that's what it comes down to for me, Fanny. Well, look, and this isn't to diminish St Kilda's efforts this season in any way. They've been terrific and it's great to see them in finals again. But I'm I'm not discounting Richmond as a flag chance at all. And I think the... Oh, you'd be crazy, crazy if you did. Uh, well, I think the fight back starts here. And... Um, it's interesting, you know, since the revamp of the final eight in 2000, we've had uh, five um, rematches of qualifying final opponents in grand finals. Four of them, the results of the qualifying final have been reversed. Uh, and I keep thinking back to Hawthorne in 2015, lost that first qualifying final to West Coast. Their fight back started with a thumping semi-final win. Now, Thumping? I don't know. I think St Kilda are better than that. But I, I've got to say, I can see Richmond winning this one reasonably comfortably. Yeah, it's, it's hard. Look, here's the problem for St Kilda. And they're, they're manifold. One, you need to be at full strength to beat the best team in the competition. And Richmond rightly holds that mantle. Look, last week, they were well down. They were still a chance with three or four minutes to go. They would have been improved immeasurably by Tom Lynch playing. Marble Choll had a pretty much a mare. Jack Rewalt is much better served playing on the second backman. And in the case of St Kilda, he's back in Victoria watching his wife deliver a baby. 
So Rewald is much better served than playing on Leicester with Harris Andrews coming over the top, obviously. So Richmond's a better team. Richmond, straight sets, I don't think so. St Kilda, from that nail-biting win over the Doggies, lose Paddy Ryder, who was best on ground, Carlisle, who they needed centre-half back, and Ben Long, who was a very important player for them off the half-back flank. So St Kilda are clearly weaker. Richmond are clearly stronger. Richmond are clearly better. Metricon is not St Kilda's favourite venue by a long chalk this season. Richmond like playing there. I mean, all signs point to a Richmond victory, so you have to tip them. It's the margin. Richmond are not punishers or annihilators. They're more strangulators. So it might not be a huge margin, Rowan, but it'll be a win most likely. I can give you a bit of intel, a bit of insight, and it's it's an interesting insight. One of St Kilda's big problems against the Doggies was, I felt, and I think the club recognises this, in the first quarter and the last quarter, they got a bit of stage fright. They were nervous. They played some very good football in between. Now, uh, I have a good mate who used to play uh, for Sandringham in the VFL. I can mention his name, Mick Gold. And he's actually quite good mates with Daniel Hannabury. And he spoke to Dan just after the game the next day. And Dan Hannabury, who showed, by the way, how invaluable he is in that team in the final for St Kilda, he said exactly what you wanted somebody in his position to say to Nick. And do you know what he said? Uh, we'll be better for the run. No. It's a free shot against Richmond. The team needs to take the pressure off themselves. Made the finals, won a final. I think that's a pretty good return for St Kilda. They've got to go in there without the nervous expectation of winning, which they had against the Bulldogs, and just have a free shot. I don't think it'll win them the game, but it'll make for a freer, more entertaining St Kilda and give them their only chance. Richmond, to me, and I've said this occasionally about Richmond, comfortably by 24 points. All right, I am also going for the Tigers. That is the first of the two knockout finals. Let's talk about the other one. The second of these knockout finals, but in fact, the first semi-final, is on Saturday evening at the Gabba, 7.40pm, Geelong taking on Collingwood. What a clash this promises to be. They last met these two back in round seven in Perth, as a matter of fact. And that was a memorable win for the Pies. They were terrific that night. They won by 22 points over the Cats. And the absolute standout of that victory was that man, Jordan Degoe, who kicked five goals in a brilliant performance. In fact, the only multiple goal kicker in that game uh, their mids were good that evening. Pendlebury and Trelaw. Darcy Moore was great in defence, as was Braden Maynard. Taylor Adams in the midfield as well. And the Cats struggled. The Cats really struggled that night. Paddy Dangerfield and Cam Guthrie, pretty good as per usual. Menegola, not bad. Tui, pretty stoic in defence. But uh, the Cats could only manage five goals for the evening. The final scores were Collingwood 8-9-57, defeating the Cats 5-5-35. Lineups, well, uh, Collingwood, not much to report. 
which is a welcome change for them. Um, Phillips could put himself in frame for selection. He's had a hamstring injury. Uh, young Kelly on his way back from a long-term elbow issue, but uh, more than likely the Pies will make no changes. And for the Cats, they've had some issues. Skipper Joel Selwood had some uh, surgery after last week's loss to Port Adelaide to stabilise the middle finger on his left hand, which was pretty badly dislocated. And the other big selection news for them, Jack Stephen, another soft tissue injury to him in a scratch match last weekend. Uh, That's him done and dusted for this season, you would think, even if the Cats survived. Uh, Boy, it's a mouth-watering matchup, this one, Finey. They've had some great tussles over the years, and they've tended to go in waves, the results between these sides too. The Pies have won the last two meetings. The uh, second to last of those was the qualifying final last year, of course. Geelong won the previous three. Collingwood won the three before that, but they've been pretty close games too. The last seven meetings between these clubs, none has been decided by anything more than 29 points. So a tight, perhaps low-scoring tussle looms. What do you think is going to happen? Well, just looking at history a bit, including the most recent history of the last game, interestingly, as you say, tight tussles have been the order of the day, but not so much in finals recently. They've met five times between 2007 and last year, and three of them were blowouts, a 78-point win, um, a 41-point win to Cats, and a 38-point win to Collingwood amongst those. They've, and interestingly, before 2007, even though, they were quite successful clubs during that period. They didn't play in a final for 26 years. You have to go back to 1981. Yeah, well, that was a famous game. The uh, Gary side bottom missing the bus game. And, uh, of course, Collingwood also burning the Cats in the 1980 preliminary final. So I guess the most instructional game is the most recent game, that one in Perth. That was actually Gary Ablett's last game before he left the team for personal reasons. And we know he hasn't come back, uh, came back only for the last home and away game in the first final. Look, uh, his form wasn't great last week, but as they say in racing parlance, surely better for the run. In that game against Collingwood, Geelong had Jordan Clark, Darcy Fort, Asafa Radigalia, Sam Simpson and Jack Stephen play. So they were a much taller team, weren't they, with Fort and Radigalia? Whilst for Collingwood, Tom Phillips, some chance to come back, did play in that game. Uh, Atu Bossena uh, Valugi, the pacey half-forward flanker, played. Rupert Wills, Callum Brown. So uh, a slightly different look to the teams. Now, here's something interesting. As you said, Dangerfield and Guthrie amongst their best, their two best, only two players to get more than 20 touches for the Cats. Now, Dangerfield got 32 touches, Rowan. Uh, Levi Greenwood, of course, has really stamped himself, uh, got a new contract, in fact, as probably the hardest tagger going around at the moment. People think that he might go to Dangerfield, maybe to Selwood. Given that Dangerfield got 32 off the leash and Collingwood still won, they may choose to send him to Selwood. What do you reckon? 
Uh, I think that's quite likely, though. I mean, to be honest, Joel Selwood has hardly been in sparkling form and hasn't necessarily been inflicting a lot of damage on opponents. And in fact, you mentioned Dangerfield. I'm wondering the percentage of time the Cats might use him forward. Yep. Um, it was certainly doing that that sort of got him into the game last week. And, uh, you know, there's just something about Collingwood has a great defensive setup. In fact, their defence, as good as Geelong's defence is, the Pies' defence has outperformed it statistically this season. They're a great unit. Um, and we saw, you know, Tom Hawkins' inaccuracy cost him as much as anything last week. But if he doesn't have his kicking boots on again or he's well held in check, you do wonder where the Cats' uh, scores are coming from. And that's despite the fact they've been a pretty free-scoring side all year. Collingwood seem to know how to both deny them supply and make it difficult for them to score when the ball gets in there. So to that end, maybe Dangerfield is another forward option for the Cats and you might see him spend longer up there. That means uh, the other midfielders are certainly going to have to stand up. And that is a bit of an issue too, because I ran through the best in that round seven clash and you had Dangerfield in there. You had Guthrie in there. Uh, Ablett got a mention as one of their better players in that game. Menegola was named among their best. So it's not as though their midfield as a group had a shocker. And yet it was still the Pies coming out on top with Trelaw starring, Pendlebury playing really well, Adams playing really well. So this to me, I reckon you've got two defensive setups which are likely to emerge on top. That makes the winner of the midfield battle probably taking all in my view. And it's always easy to say that, but I think this game more than most. And I talked about those previous Geelong Collingwood games, a common denominator in just about all of them has been some very low scoring. And we're not just talking about this season in uh, short and quarter times. We're talking about your standard old day times where uh, we had full quarters. They have produced some really low scoring, dour, um, certainly not free-flowing clashes. So it's pretty hard to say that this one would be any different. Goals are going to be at a premium. And I think the midfield, which not only wins the lion's share of possession, but can creep forward and just midfielders chip in with one or two goals apiece, that might well make the difference between these two sides, I suspect. I'm leaning towards Collingwood myself, uh, mainly because I think structurally they provide potentially more, and as you said, more options up forward than just the idea of maybe Hawkins' equivalent Cox taking marks and kicking goals. And, of course, that comes from Dugowie mainly as an omnipresent danger. We know that he is maybe getting a return out of Elliot. The, The reality is that Geelong unfortunately, now seem to rely very heavily on Tom Hawkins to get a score. And the last time they met, people say, oh, Tom Hawkins comes in with that nervy goal kicking in week one of the finals. I think playing on his mind even more so will be the fact that last time they met, he only kicked one behind. That was Geelong's second lowest score of the season 
It was actually their least number of scoring shots, five goals, five, ten, and their lowest score at half time, one goal, three. So scoring is where Collingwood can potentially, if they dry it up, forge along. Obviously, they win the game if they can dry along scoring up. But if they dry it up early, I think there's a bit of a panic button hit. And unfortunately, last week, when Tom hit the panic button, he went way off script, snapping the ball around the corner. Um, a lot of almost, um, you know, there, there was a bit of petulance about him, uh, complaining with some umpiring decisions. I don't know. I saw a bit of the old, the bad Matthew Richardson in him, to be honest. Mm. <laughs> I didn't like what I saw. I think Collingwood have their heads screwed on. I know it's easy to pick the team that wins in week one over the team that loses in week one. But in this case, that was some special victory. What toll going to Perth, having to isolate and coming back to Queensland has on Collingwood, we will know after the game. Only after the game, Rowan. If it hasn't been too onerous, I tip the pies. All right. Yeah, I'm really agonising over the tip here, and I think you've argued a very good case for them. I'm going for the Cats, though, and it's probably in the end down to nothing more than this. I think they've been incredibly consistent side over the years. In fact, I've written a a column about the Cats, their finals record, which we all know now is 4-12 since their last premiership. It's on the Footyology website today if you want to have a read. But You know, I don't think there's ever been much fundamentally wrong with this side. And I think one of their things in finals, no, they haven't won enough finals to count, but they generally get to that at least second last weekend. In fact, in all their recent performance, they've only once gone out in straight sets. That was back in 2014. And it was a major upset when they lost that second final that year to North Melbourne. So can Collingwood do a North Melbourne? Well, it was a massive win last week and you'd think, you know, it's a great moment for them. But I think it might have taken a bit out of them. And, you know, whilst it was a fantastic effort to win that game in Perth after being in hard quarantine for a week, you know, perhaps the come down happens after it and we might be underestimating a bit. And, you know, look, if it happened, it's perfectly understandable. So I think that might be hey, a fact. Ro- hey, Rowan, they beat West Coast. They didn't go to a rave and take three ecstasy tablets. Well, I'd hope not because they'd be banned for uh, illegal substance abuse. What, yeah, what, the, what's the point you're making there? The come down. There's no, you know, I, I'm, I'm looking for it to be a Philip for them, not a come down. Okay. Philip who? Tom um, Yeah, okay. Uh, thanks for that. Um, <laughs> thanks for that. Interjection. Uh, no, I'm, I'm counting on the Cats' pride to see them through. I think it'll be really tight, this. I think it could well be less than a kick in it, continuing that tradition of close games between those two. But I differ from you, Finey. I'm going for Geelong to prevail and have, have another crack at it. That is our two previews of two big semifinals. What's next? Well, Finey. I've got a bit of uh, a fair amount of you-know-what on my liver. Woohoo! The rant's back. Yeah, baby. And I think it's time I vented my considerably-sized spleen. Let's do that. On Footyology. 
The Rant Off. All right, Fonny, how are we going to do this? Well, first of all, as The Rant always used to demand, a passionate, passionate telling and, and expressing of something that's important to you. I think, and I know, I know, no secret here, Essendon Football Club, which is so close to your heart, has obviously in the last, in this season, gone to a place that you're not comfortable with. Many supporters aren't. I know you take it very seriously. And I think we kick off with you looking honestly at the club you love, but maybe don't like. (laughs) My mother used to say that to me. I always love you. Doesn't mean I always like you. All right. Well, this is about culture and people have asked me a fair bit about it. So uh, I've attempted to explain that. I'd like you to count me in, please. Yeah. And I should say that because you're so active on social media, uh, I know that there's already been a huge response and a great interest into what you have to say about the club. So buckle yourselves in, people. This is going to be a big one. Rowan, three, two, one. I've been talking about cultural issues at Essendon for a while. That annoys people because they think it's too convenient and cliched. What does it actually mean, they ask? Well, in a nutshell, for a long time, and I'm talking decades, for Essendon, I think it's been about an inflated sense of importance and essentially a failure to make the right decisions because its so-called big club status has offered a false sense of security. It's been about a failure to follow process drug saga anyone, a refusal to admit error and too much power either in the wrong or too few hands, be it inside or outside the physical surrounds of the club itself. Every time, particularly this week, I tweet something about the subject, I get a lot of responses about Adam Saad or Joe Danaher or Ben Rutten. But this is about something a lot bigger than just that particular group of people at this particular time because the processes of the Essendon Football Club are fatally flawed. It's not just recruitment or list management or coaching. For example, what about development? I asked a couple of months ago on this show, name me a bona fide AFL champion Essendon has produced of its own accord over the past two decades, apart from Joe Watson. Answer, there isn't one. What does that tell you? And if player development is a real priority, why has there been a virtual revolving door of development coaches and staff over recent years? Too many to recall here in one go. Look, I'm neither here nor there on recruiting and list manager Adrian Dodoro, but I bet you can't name another club at which one man, given the lack of on-field success Essendon's had for 20 years, would have continued to hold those roles all that time. Doesn't that say a lot about the inability of this whole club to hold itself to account, to not just talk about setting standards, but be prepared to act when they're not being met? And if the administration isn't held to account by itself or by a board which seems to have all the rigour of a wet lettuce leaf, why is it any surprise that players start wondering why they should be held to account either? The single best comment on this cultural stuff I've heard in the last week came from Matthew Lloyd last night on Footy Classified. And it was on the back of a discussion about the range of draft picks Essendon could expect for Saad and Danaher. Lloyd said, it doesn't matter who comes in. If you cannot get the environment right, they'll fall by the wayside too. Lloyd, he gets it. I wish more Essendon people did. 
People want names. They want scapegoats. But this isn't all just about Dodoro or Chief Executive Xavier Campbell or Football Manager Dan Richardson or Rutten or former President Lindsay Tanner or the new one in Paul Brescia or the board. This is a collective failure. Indeed, one which, while it includes, also precedes them. They've all been at fault in letting an inadequate environment drift along in a series of bad appointments, bad decisions, in identifying issues too late, then knee-jerk reactions, misreading the list again, losing the wrong people on and off the field, of failing to see the increasing disconnect of supporters who are sick to death of the never-ending spin and corporate speak, the pat video messages from players, or when the communications they get from the club aren't straight-up honesty about why things aren't going well, exactly where the club is at, and what needs to be done, but insulting offers of discounts on crappy merchandise instead. Of failing to recognise that while headquarters at Tullamarine may look flash on the inside, for fans who want to get close to their club, on the outside, it's a barren, soulless, cold and uninviting place. Is all this too big picture? Okay, I'll give you a few specific questions. Like on Saad and Danaher, look, it's great to talk tough about players needing to buy in and if feathers are ruffled so be it and feeding little damaging anecdotes about guys like Saad to the media so fans will turn on him and call him selfish but is that just rationalising the loss of a player who only a couple of days ago the club was trying desperately to keep? Essendon had a chance a year ago to make a stand on these so-called standards when it knew that Rutten who'd been there a year already as an assistant would be effectively coaching in his own right in 2020. He could have traded out then Danaher and Orazio Fantasia and said to the playing group, you're either in or you're out. Instead, it chose to let the tail wag the dog for another year, during which standards and morale deteriorated further. See, that's about culture. And another 12 months of treading water because you won't make tough decisions says only one thing, a weak culture. Perhaps it's not so surprising then that the Dons didn't want Rutten fronting the media, even though he was coach, instead wheeling out Warsfold to repeat the same deadpan mantras about learnings. And why would he do anything else when it wasn't his team anyway? That disrespected fans more than anything. They're smarter than you think, guys. Essendon seems to have this obsession about optics and about the world caving in if it somehow has to admit it got things wrong. But guess what? Fans appreciate that a lot more than corporate gobbledygook and spin, and they know an ass-covering exercise when they see one. Speaking of which, let's talk about that disastrous coaching succession plan. I know plenty of people who it impacted upon thought it was a terrible idea. Campbell was a big fan, though. Why? Well, maybe go back to John Warsold's premature contract extension at the start of 2018, after the virtual write-off of 2016, when Essendon fielded a virtual reserves team and then 2017 whipped into a final series and got destroyed in an elimination final. That didn't need to happen. This isn't a slide on a guy who at least took on what became the most thankless coaching job in football, but it's not as though rival clubs were exactly beating a path towards Fold's door. That extension took in 2019 and this year. By the end of the first of those two years, the club decided it wanted someone else. But it's pretty hard not to conclude the CEO was so worried about the optics of admitting they'd got the extension wrong that the club got too clever by half in engineering and never more than very awkward looking 
dual coaching setup. What about on-field leadership? Well, the player leadership group has been a bit of an elephant in the room, and for good reason. They might have delivered some very good and at least serviceable football for Essendon, but Jake Stringer, Devin Smith, and now Dylan Shiel aren't renowned among coaches as being the most team-orientated players. And there's a fair argument none had spent enough time at their new club to be officially anointed leaders, as the latter two were this year. But players vote on that group. They elected them, which might also say a bit about how undemanding their own standards have been. Again, the administration copped out by refusing to overturn a decision it had grave reservations about. Zach Merritt, meanwhile, was voted out. That may or may not have been the right call. But if you're going to do that, you at least owe the guy an explanation. And my understanding of that schmozzle is that Merritt never actually heard officially from the club about it until he found out via the media. That's not good culture. What's also not good culture is when you shut out the members from even effectively having a say on who represents the club at board level. As I mentioned a couple of weeks back, that's effectively what's happened with the board election process. I think Kevin Sheedy has plenty to contribute. I think he's prepared to ask questions. Does he need to be on the board to ask them though? But now, because he's been appointed by the board to fill casually the position Katie Leo resigned from to allow him on, he'll be taking her position on the election ballot paper in December, endorsed as a ticket with football director Sean Wellman, also up for re-election. That renders an election redundant because any other potential candidates, and there were plenty of them, now know they have no chance of beating two club premiership heroes. Yes, it's smart politics from the administration, avoiding potential negative publicity, but it's also made a mockery of a democratic process effectively locking members out of having a say in the running of their own club. They don't even have a public members forum anymore to voice any concerns they may have. That's been a done away with as well. Again, it's hard not to see conscripting Sheedy onto the board as anything but another ass-covering exercise and another shiny new toy to wave at fans as a diversionary tactic. That's culture too, a dictatorial one. Two episodes for me best sum up Essendon's cultural malaise. The first is from late 2017 when the Bombers, fighting for a final spot, played tepid football all day and were eventually overrun at home by Brisbane, then bottom of the ladder with two wins. It was a stinker and a disappointed Xavier Campbell tweeted the following mild rebuke. Not good enough. Not even close. Fans deserve so much better. 41,000 came out today and we let you down. It was pretty mild stuff. Incredibly, the playing list was so livid that Campbell then had to apologise for that tweet to the leadership group. What does that say about the strength of a club's culture on either side of that equation? First, what the players sooked about, and secondly, that the CEO had to renege on what he said in a tweet. That was four years ago. The other story is worse, and it's from even longer ago, back in 2015. It's about when Essendon was looking for a coach to replace James Hurd. A short list of candidates was assembled and it featured some pretty impressive names. But unknowingly to those who assembled it, it was also redundant. That's because then-President Paul Little had made a unilateral decision to jump in his private plane, fly to Adelaide and attempt to hire Warsfold as coach. It's fair to say the board was less than thrilled when they knew about that only when they saw it on TV. So were those so-called coaching candidates when they got wind of it, which is a pity because a couple of them, 
have since gone on to become pretty highly regarded on the coaching front. Had they made even half the impression at Essendon they have subsequently elsewhere, the club might have avoided some of the mess it's in now. But not all of it, mind you, because this once mighty club's greatest failing might be its seeming inability to concede just how far it has fallen. Even now, even after this stinker of a year and with key players wanting out. Yes, that's about culture too, a culture of denial. Matthew Lloyd was talking about players when he observed that even the best, if the environment wasn't right, would fall by the wayside. Essendon's environment definitely isn't right. It hasn't been for a long time. And unless it first wakes up to that fact and then takes some pretty drastic action, not just on the field, but in much of its whole operations, a whole club might find itself similarly falling by the wayside, if it hasn't already. Wow. Hey, that was compelling, Rowan. Brilliant. I hung on every word. That was great. Well, yeah, I mean, I look, I, you know, I, I put a bit of time and effort into that. People think culture is a nebulous thing. They think it's too hard to define. Oh, as, it's oh. a fallback option. I've just tried to define exactly what culturally is wrong with that club. No, it's, it's, not, it's not a nebulous thing. It's, you know, it's what has... It's what sort of um, takes Hawthorne back to the top so regularly. It's a belief that this place is right. You know, I've felt as a St Kilda supporter, not that the culture's necessarily wrong to play good football, but they just there's a, a, a belief on the biggest stage, on grand final day and in big finals, that we don't quite belong there. And these mm. things manifest themselves and take a long time to change. And, it, and change only comes with some pretty major, um, you know, a major change of direction. And you're 100% right from the outside. Whatever changes Essendon make, they're, they're not, you know, they're not taking another road. They're just, they're just really, you know, in a different lane on the same road. Well, the first step to this is recognition. And I don't think that recognition has happened. So that's yep. the key. I, I'm yep. not seeing it. All right. That took up a lot of time. So thanks for that being patient and bearing with me. Um, all right, Fine. Have you got something to read about? Perhaps lighten the mood a little? Not anywhere near as serious. All right. Well, that's probably But you get a thing. mention nevertheless. Oh, okay. Always worrying. All right. I'm going to count you in now. Three, two, one. Rant. What a time it has been for Victorians, particularly Melbourne, Melbournians. Pariahs we are, locked away like death row inmates, allowed out one hour a day for exercise in the yard, no contact with any other prisoners. We turn to mother, father, carer, lover, teacher. I speak of the television. And I've noticed something on TV, Rowan, and that is, that during this period, this hard time for Victorians, Melburnians in particular, advertising seems aimed at our misery. And there are certain types of ads that proliferate. Ads for diets. I guess we are all putting on weight with only one hour in the exercise yard. What the hell is Noom? Is it Moon spelled backwards? Are we supposed to diet by pulling our pants down? Maybe. And it's a philosophy, not a diet. Yeah, here's the philosophy. Eat less, exercise more. 
There's also a lot of ads for life insurance in which the father is always dead. I don't like those ads, Rowan. I don't like those ads one bit. But there is one form of ad that is proliferating. And that is, as we all are earning, or most of us are earning less money, relying on job keeper, job saver, head job giver. I don't know what the name of the, the new one is, but it's gambling. That's going to be the way out of it. And these ads are coming on, not just during sporting events, at all times. I know you're not supposed to advertise bookmakers during kids' programming, but surely, surely the block and the mass Singer is kids' programming. It's so inane and infantile, and they advertise gambling during those programs. There's sports bet and sporting bet. You know that one, Rowan, the one with Trenchy. Oh. I, don't know, I don't know who he's for, but it's your favourite. Oh. There's blue bet. I should bet with them because I normally say I blew my money. There's bet easy. I find betting easy. I find winning difficult. There's points bet. Can I bet my Qantas points with them? I won't be using them in the next decade. There's lad brokes for broke lads. There's neds, which sounds like nads. Remember the hair remover? Maybe they're a money remover. There's Palmer bet. Oh, God. Is that Clive Palmer? Can you bet on how many dinosaurs you're supposed to put on a golf course? I don't know. There's bet 365, bet 24-7. Did bet 365 become... Bet 366 this year because it's a leap year. There's Betfair, which I'm pretty sure is unfair. I mean, there's a lot of different choices out there. And the best thing is that they can bet on anything. And they bet and they advertise during the news. That's right. Are you supposed to bet during the news? Can you bet on how many new COVID cases there are? Can you bet on? How many times Daniel Andrews will say, we need to look at the data. Actually, I know what I want to bet on. If they're going to bet during the news, Rowan, and advertise betting during the news, I want to bet on the US elections. And I want to bet with Palmer Bet. Because I want to bet with a senile old politician as to which senile old politician will win the US elections. In fact, if I can bet on a senile old politician, I can't lose. That's what I'm going to bet on. Uh, very good. What do they call that bet where you cover the field? Um, well, that that's a field bet, or there's um, arbitrage and arbitrage yeah, or whatever. No, it's no, called. A, a field bet in two on the uh, old senile politician in the US. I think would just about cover it. And yeah, thanks for reminding me about bloody multi mic. Next up, Nate. Finchy, aka Trenchy, Trenchy. <laughs> or the answer. Uh, it, it did allow me uh, investigating that uh, to at least find out that Alan Iverson is called the answer, apparently. Well, <laughs> Alan, I never asked you the bloody question, mate. I don't want the answer. Anyway, <laughs> that was a very funny rant, Finey, and a suitable antidote to, um, to my rather serious one. All right. We better get out of here. I reckon uh, we've had a good show today. Plenty of interesting stuff to talk about. And we've had a bit of fun too. Thanks for your company, everyone. Don't forget uh, Footyology Final Siren on Friday night, straight after the big Richmond St Kilda semi-final. Jump on Twitter and ask us a question. We will do our best to answer it and also have a bit of a laugh or two after the footy. 
check out footyology.com.au. I've got a column up there at the moment about Geelong and its final struggles. Francis Leach has a good column today about uh, contrarian musicians popping up all over the place in the wake of the coronavirus. All sorts of interesting material. And uh, I think I might turn that little rant of mine into an article and get that up at some stage as well. Plenty to look forward to, footyology.com.au. Final plug for our wonderful sponsors, if you will. If you think I wanted a burger before this episode was put on to... What did we put it on to? Tape? Super 8? I don't know. How do you, have they recorded in the old days? Anyhow. If I, I think Damon's, Damon's got his ghetto blaster sort of yeah. stuck up against the uh, yeah, speaker that, here. Yeah, that's how I used to do my mixtapes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, if we if I wanted a burger before, I'm desperate for one now. 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park, the beautiful Andrews hamburgers. And Nick Spartel's West Point Properties for all your home renos, new houses, and if you like your floors warm, he can even put in that that heating under the slate. <laughs> Magnificent, Rowan. Uh, good stuff, Fanny. Uh, can hope, I, can I, hope I just when we reconvene? I'm happy as Larry. I, I just uh, I need to congratulate you on your very dramatic pregnant pauses. In fact, some would say they're about ten weeks overdue. Some of those pauses. But they, they work. They work. Now, well done. They're great sponsors. Uh, thank you to all for listening to us. You can support us at the ACAST podcast supporter page, uh, which you heard me plugging at the start of this episode. Or please jump onto our Patreon page and become an official Footyology patron. Your support really does help. And we are very grateful for it. I don't know if you've heard that plug at the start of the podcast, Fanny, but I say any donation will allow you and I to help feed our starving children. So uh, hopefully yours are getting a bit bit of a feed out of it. I'm feeding myself first. All right. No, fair enough. I think that's quite justified in this case. All right. Uh, have a good weekend, everyone. Enjoy your footy and we'll speak to you next time.